Well, good morning, friends. Good to see everyone here. Welcome our uh, guests and visitors as well who have joined us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Psalms. And we thank you for how they teach us to pray, how they teach us to approach you. And Lord God, in, in the context of working through the letter of Second Peter, how they teach us to supplement our faith with virtue and knowledge and godliness and self-control, brotherly affection and love. We thank you, O Lord God, that we can come to you in prayer and that we can petition you when we are in trouble or in difficulty or in doubt, when we are wrestling, Lord God, with the issues of life, the circumstances, and even people, Lord, who make us question our relationship with you and even question the validity of our faith. We find, Father, in the Psalms, these issues address these concerns, these doubts, these affirmations, Lord God, pour forth from your servant David and from all those uh, psalm writers. We ask, O oh Lord, for your presence now to continue to be among us as we have sung of your great provision, as we have confessed our sin and received the assurance of salvation, as we have reminded ourselves that our only hope in life and death is that Jesus Christ has given his life for us, has died for our sins as our sin bearer, who is the atoning sacrifice for sin, the embodiment of your grace, your truth, and your beauty. We thank you, Lord God, that these things are communicated to us from your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through mediums such as song and preaching and hearing your word read. We ask, O oh Lord God, for your continued ministry among us now, uh, for we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I uh, indicated in my prayer, the reason why we're uh, deviating just this week, next week we'll return to Second uh, Peter, but I'm, I'm taking us on a little bit of a detour back into the Old Testament, back into the Psalms, uh, and especially uh, Psalm 86, because it's, it's a psalm that shows us how to go about supplementing our faith, how we are to rely upon the trustworthiness of God and His Word. And Psalm 86 is, is one of those psalms, and if you... Uh, notice here, if you have just sort of just take a brief scan of the Psalms in the 80s, you will notice that this is the only Psalm in the 80s that is attributed to David. And it is placed deliberately in the midst of these Psalms written uh, in the 80s to help us understand uh, how uh, this collection of Psalms ask God to rebuild, to restore, to renew, and to revive the, the spiritual life and heritage of Israel. Most of the Psalms, excluding Psalm 86, are written after Israel has re been returned to its homeland from 70 years of captivity uh, to the Babylonians and other nations. And so these Psalms that are written, these Psalms that appear in the 80s here, are all designed to ask for God's help to rebuild, restore, renew, and revive the spiritual legacy of Israel. And in fact, most of the Psalms are directed in that way. And if there's ever then a man, an individual who understood and who learned the value and the need to trust God to rebuild, to restore, to renew, and to revive his own spiritual life and heritage, it is David. And this psalm, as you read it, as we'll work our way through it, you will see how in this psalm David is asking and relying on God to rebuild his life. 
And if David is relying upon God to rebuild his life, then by association and by faith, we too can trust God to rebuild, to renew, to restore, and to revive our lives as well. And I think of that in particular with regard to the future for Maranatha. This is the second to the last sermon that I will preach here. And I am praying, as are all of you, for God's will to be done in the future when a new man is called to serve here as your lead pastor. And as you incline uh, God's ear to your prayer, not only for the search committee, but for the elders and those responsible for making the decision, we want to be very confident, as is David, as are all of the scripture writers, that this one truth is the thing upon which we will rely, certainly for Jill and I, as we move on to another uh, chapter in our lives, as I start a new ministry helping people learn how to die in a hospice situation. The one thing that we can be sure of, and we have sung about it as well, is that the Lord will provide whatever we need to help us through uncertain times. We have this assurance that as we put our trust and our hope in God, all will be well. And we can trust the Lord who has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness, who has given us the faith that allows us to add to that faith, to build it up with the virtues that he has already provided, knowledge, Self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, love. The reason that David can be confident that the Lord will provide whatever he needs to help him through in certain times is stated very clearly in verse 5. He, he writes, for you, O Lord, and notice that you have your Bible before you, you will see the word Lord, the name Lord is all capitalized. And so this is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. So David is appealing and he is declaring his trust in the covenant-keeping faithfulness of the ever-loyal and steadfast loving God. He says, For you, Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And so David is trusting God as the one who keeps covenant to keep covenant with him. The Lord helped David. And comforted him because the Lord is good, because the Lord is forgiving, because the Lord is abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. God is not cheap with his grace. He lavishes it upon, certainly upon his people whom he has chosen to redeem. Remembering as well that once we were separated from God, he lavished his grace upon us by choosing us in Christ to receive that grace and to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And so David is basing everything he says in this psalm on that covenant relationship that God has established with him. Remember, it was God who anointed David through Samuel. And so our confidence when we go to God in prayer as those who have trusted in Christ is that there is a relationship that God is not unwilling to bestow upon us the things for which we ask. And if for any reason he withholds from us the things we are asking, there is a reason he is doing that which we discover as we trust him, as we seek him, as we Ask him to incline our ear to our petition. I'm not a musician, but I have 
a daughter who is, and I like music, and one of the forms of music that I like is jazz. Psalm 86 is written like a jazz composition. If you know anything about jazz, there is a main theme, there is a head that starts, the, the main beat, if you will, the main set line of rhythm. And then there are variations of that theme, and then toward the end of the piece, you return back to the head. So if, if Psalm 86 can be compared to a jazz piece, then verse 5 is the head. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You get into the body of the psalm, verses 10, 13, and 15 are the variations of that theme. Verse 10 says, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And then verse 15, but you, O Lord, are good, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 17, we return back to the main theme in verse 5. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Why? Because you are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Now, the beauty of the Psalms, as I said, is that they have this ability to teach us theology that reaches the head by preaching to the heart. For example, we trust the Lord to provide uh, when we say, let's say, the Lord will provide whatever we need to help us through in certain times, that's a statement of fact. That's a truth. But that's all it is at that moment. Put those words in the mouth of someone who has actually experienced trusting and receiving from God everything they need to help them through in certain times, and then suddenly what is learned up here in the head is remembered in the heart. David speaks in this psalm as a man who has experienced the goodness of God, the abounding steadfast love of God, and the covenant loyalty and faithfulness of God. So when we come to break down the psalm, the, the big idea, if you will, is simply this. And I've been saying it several times already, that the Lord will provide whatever we need to help us through uncertain times because he is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. So we look at how the psalm breaks down into, into four particular movements. The first movement is in verses 1 to 7 that God provides by answering our prayers when we're in trouble. Then the second movement of the psalm is that God provides because he is great and he does wondrous things. That's verses 8 to 10. And then the third movement, God provides so that we will trust him with all our heart, verses 11 to 13. And then God provides by helping those who look to him for help. That's verses 14 through 17. So the Lord will provide whatever we need to help us get through troubled times because he is good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. He answers our prayers when we're in trouble. He is great and does wondrous things. He provides so that we will trust him with all of our heart. And he helps those who look for him, look to him for help. 
So let's look at the first movement here. God provides by answering our prayers when we're in trouble. I won't read all of uh, verses 1 to 7, but just remember that theme, that head in verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Because like his readers, remember, the people who are reading this psalm have, have come out of 70 years of captivity. They have been exiled from their homeland. And David is writing as a man who has experienced that kind of pain. He has been exiled. He has been removed from his homeland. Remember, as a young man, David had to flee Israel because King Saul put a price on his head and wanted him dead because Saul perceived David as a threat to his throne. So David literally was on the run for his life for many years before God finally installed him as a king in Jerusalem. Then as an older man, once David was king, David had to flee Jerusalem and Israel again because his son Absalom had mounted a coup against him in order to seize the throne. So David knows the pain of being, having to be, live on the run and having to move away from the surroundings that are comfortable and familiar. He knows what it, what it feels like to have your life hang in the balance. And in between those two events, between Saul's wanting to murder him and Absalom's wanting to murder him, betrayal by his own son, which raises other issues in terms of when you look at all of the families in the Old Testament, there is dysfunction written through all of them. But that's a whole other issue. Between those two events of Saul wanting to kill him and of his own son wanting to kill him, David learned the value of God's grace and forgiveness because God had forgiven him his adultery with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to kill her husband. So when David prays at the start of the psalm, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy, he is pleading with God like a man who knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. He is experienced. Alienation, separation, hostility, doubt, fear. All of those things go into the psalm. David isn't sitting under some shade tree on a hill with the sheep gently blowing in the distance with a babbling brook thinking, what could, I, what could I write describing what it feels like to call upon God? No, he is drawing from his experience. So when you find yourself in a situation where things are tight and you are in a tight space so that every potential move is fraught with disaster, you pray this prayer. Incline your ear to me, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. I don't have the resources to deal with this particular situation. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the connections. I don't have the will, but you do. And you have those things at your disposal. And when you confess that need, God hears and he answers. David begged God to forgive him in Psalm 51, to forgive him as the worst of sinners because David had committed the worst of sins. Now, we may think, well, I can't go to God because I've done thus and such. I've done these terrible things. Well, have you, have you done what David has? You conspired to kill someone? That's a big sin. You may have committed murder in your heart, but that doesn't, won't keep you, says David, from asking God's help. 
Only someone like David, someone who has sinned so badly and offended God so greatly, knows what it means to say, you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. He is pleading with God to listen to him because his hope has sunk to its lowest point. So he turns to the only one who can lift him up from that pit of despair, get him back on his feet, and help him to start all over again. David declares his loyalty to God because God is loyal to him. Verse, uh, verse 2 of, of the psalm is kind of misleading, and it's sort of counterintuitive. When David says, preserve my life, for I am godly, you think, whoa, David, godly? He commits adultery. He does these things. A, a better, maybe a clearer understanding, a clearer translation is a, of a, a newer uh, translation of the Bible called the New English Translation. I, I recommend it as a companion to read with the English Standard if that's your regular Bible. So the New English Translation looks at verse 2 and, and, and uh, translates that, Preserve my life or save me, O God, because I am loyal. David says, I am loyal. How does he prove his loyalty? Because when David sins, David doesn't run away from God, he runs toward God. So you prove your loyalty to the faithfulness, to the steadfast love, to the gracious forgiveness of God by running to him for forgiveness, not running away. Yes, you may have broken a covenant. Yes, you may have broken a commandment. Yes, you may have sinned. Join the club. You're a human being. You are fallible. You will make mistakes. And the enemy will exploit that to his advantage by using your sin to drive you away from God when in fact the Holy Spirit says, turn around, go to him for forgiveness because God is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. When David sinned, he ran toward God, not away from him. When you sin, I hope, I hope that you, I would exhort you to run toward God and to bask and to bathe in the gracious forgiveness of a loving God and Savior. Because when we need forgiveness, God can be trusted to be good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. When we long for restoration, for renewal, for rebuilding and for reviving of our own faith, God can be relied upon to provide it. And when we yearn to be delivered from trouble, we can depend on God to provide us and to give us whatever we need to help us through uncertain times. Certainly he's given us his word. Certainly he's given us his Holy Spirit. But he's also given us brothers and sisters with whom we can open our heart and ask for prayer, to lean upon, to, to, for help, for assistance, for guidance, and for wisdom. We are not meant ever to live this life of following God on our own. That's another, if you will, deceit of the enemy, is to separate sheep from the flock by accusation. That's what he does. He uses words. When he uses words, we remember the word who came in human form 
to bear in his body the very sin and the penalty for our sin that allows us to plead with God, incline your ear to me, O God, because you are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. And be aware, the way that David frames this, the way that David structures his prayer here, it tells us something very clear about God's character. Because it's not the severity of our circumstances, says David, that moves God to hear our prayer. It's not the, it's not the impassioned devotion with which we pray. It's not even the depravity of our sin and rebellion that moves God to incline his ear and to answer our prayer for forgiveness. David says, no, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God and his character as one who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. To understand that it is God's delight to lavish grace and mercy and forgiveness upon those who ask it of him. We have this thought, and I don't know where we get it from. It probably comes from the enemy or it comes from some other source that tells us when we sin, we can't go to God for forgiveness, especially if it's a continual sin, a sin that we struggle with over and over and over again. And we think, how many times will God forgive I don't know, how many times do you have? I mean, if, if when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone up to seven times, and Jesus says up to 70 times, essentially Jesus is saying, as many times as you're sinned against, you forgive. As many times as you sin against God, that's as many times as he will forgive you because that's as permanent is the absolution and the assurance and the cleansing that Christ's blood provides. You're going to have a new pastor here. And he's going to make mistakes. Because he loves Christ and he loves you. And he wants to see this church grow. When he makes mistakes, forgive him. Because he's human. And the mistakes that he will make will be mistakes of commission because he is impassioned to see you reach your full height in Christ. I speak from experience. I speak as one who has made a lot of mistakes. I also speak as one who has lived and breathed and been sustained by the prayers of a loving, forgiving church. Be that kind of church because you are that kind of church. We have been carried by your prayers, and we will be sustained by them after we leave. So God answers our prayers. He gives us what we need to help us when we are in trouble. God's character, if you will, inspires our contrition. And when he inspires our contrition, he inspires our confession. When he inspires our confession, he inspires our covenant loyalty to him. So God answers our prayers when we're in trouble. The second thing is that God provides because he is great and does wondrous things. In verses 8 to 10, David declares the uniqueness of God. He says, there are none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Why? For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. This is, this is prescient because he is anticipating what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, that the, the idols that people worship, the gods that people establish of, of money or some other kind of religion, they don't exist. They're all false. Here is one God. Here is the, the, the creator God, the unique God above all. And this God does amazing things, starting with forgiveness. All other gods, all other religions preach and teach Forgiveness is something you must earn. You must go on some pilgrimage. You must go on some stringent form of self-denial, some ascetic pursuit. And what God says is, I don't need any of that. There's nothing you can give me that I don't already own, including your soul. What I want from you is simply the acknowledgement I am God, you are not, you're a sinner, and I am a God who forgives. Why? Because he is good and forgiving, and he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because he is abounding in steadfast love. He is merciful to all who call upon him. David is the poster child for every sinner in need of grace, forgiveness, love, mercy, restoration, and renewal. You want a role model in terms of what it means to sin greatly and be forgiven much? Go to David. As God forgave David, this is why Psalm 86 appears right in the middle of these 80s psalms, because as God forgave David, the, the way the, psal the Psalter is composed is saying, God can also forgive and restore and rebuild and renew and revive a nation. And if God can restore and rebuild, renew and revive a nation, he can also rebuild, restore, renew and revive an individual, a man and woman who pleads with God for mercy, for grace, for justice. Amazingly enough, you also have an opening of a door to missions here in these verses. Because David says, this grace that God has lavished upon me, that he lavishes upon his covenant people Israel, this grace will be extended to the nations. So the very people whom God used to punish his people, God here we see will bring them into covenant relationship with himself. This is an astounding thing that God makes even his enemies his worshipers. It shouldn't amaze us, though, because before we came to faith in Christ, that's exactly how the Scriptures describe us. In Romans 5, Paul says, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. When we were worthy of nothing except being destroyed and condemned for our sin, God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. We sang about it. Nail prints in his hands, crown of thorns in his head, spear thrust in the side, so that we who did not worship him 
will worship him so that we can say my only hope in life and death is that I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ. David sees here with the eyes of faith what Paul says is already happening in Ephesians. That um, the Gentiles who were at one time alienated and separated from God, having no hope, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's us. The God who helps those hope in him, David says, will wondrously transform his enemies into his worshipers. God does great things. He does amazing things. He does wonderful things. He takes enemies and he turns them into worshipers. That should inspire us to pray for that irritant at work or for that, <laughs> one of my favorite words, that truculent child <laughs> that always seems to know what button to push or that parent that always finds a way, you think, to spoil your fun. To understand that there are actions we can take by way of prayer and trusting and asking God to change us. Because as he changes us, he may not change our circumstances, but he changes our perception of our circumstances so that we understand, as we would tell our kids, the rules that we have, kids, are not to spoil your fun. They're to protect you. They're to help you grow. And as we learn to be patient with them, praying for patience, praying for wisdom, you develop not an adversarial relationship, but a relationship of mutuality, of love, and of understanding. God does wonderful and amazing things. He provides as well, says David, so that we will trust him with all of our heart. In verse 11 to 13, again, we're working on this variation. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Why? For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, the motive for David's prayer in verse 11, teach me your way and so forth, that's explained in verse 13. Right? Every one of these sections has this conclusion Statement. You know that because in English you get the word for. Every time you see the word for, that's a concluding statement. So why does David say, teach me your way, unite my heart? For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of Sheol. So God has rescued him. He's rescued him from Sheol, the, the dwelling place of the dead, which was considered to be a place of torment and suffering among Old Testament saints. David has experienced God's grace. Remember, he could have been killed, and, can, and rightly so, for having committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspiring to murder her husband. God did not. So David prays, as he does in verse 11, teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. By way of clarification, I like the new English translation of this verse. Teach me how you want me to live. Then I will obey your commands. Teach me how you want me to live. Tell me what you want me to do, and I will do it. That, <laughs> that request solves, well, on one hand, it solves things. In other words, 
in every marital argument, that request, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Right? That bit of clarity is, is, is very helpful, and that's what David wants. Give me clarity. Show me. Teach me, and I will do it. Because that's the prayer of someone who has sinned against God, someone who has been forgiven, someone who wants to follow God more closely. This is the prayer of a man who at one time followed his own heart, listening to his own heart, rather than listening to the voice of God, and he suffered the consequences of that bad choice. So this is the prayer of a man who learned the lesson of Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. This is the prayer of a man who earnestly desires to worship God with an undivided heart. And that explains the second part of his prayer, where he says, Unite my heart to fear your name. Once again, make me wholeheartedly committed to fearing your name. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve your heart, and you can't serve God. You can't serve your job, and you can't serve God. You can't serve your marriage. And you can't serve God. You serve God, all those other things come into alignment. You make him the priority, all those other things will come into line. But if you make them compete against one another, it won't go well. There will be tension. There will be strife. There will be anxiety. There will be doubt. So David wants a whole heart. He wants a united heart. He wants to be fully committed to doing what God wants him to do. In psalm 51.10, when David makes his prayer of confession in that psalm, he says, he asks God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. The only way to get a clean heart is to ask God for it, because only a clean heart is a united, is a united heart, is an undivided heart. David remembers God was wholeheartedly devoted to David long before David was wholeheartedly devoted to him. When Samuel was asked to go and anoint David to be king, it's God who tells Samuel, I have chosen someone who is a man after my own heart. And then when Samuel goes to Jesse's house and Jesse's sons walk in, David's not there, and he sees the firstborn, this tall, strapping, big guy. And Samuel says, oh, there's this six-foot-five hunk of humanity. This is the next king of Israel. And God whispers in Samuel's ear and says, no, not him. Man looks at the outward, I look at the heart. David understood that God was wholeheartedly committed to him before he was wholeheartedly committed to God. The same is true for you and me. The cross is evidence of that. That he is wholeheartedly committed to our good, to our salvation, to our benefit, and to our blessing long before we are ever wholeheartedly committed to him. And so David wants that kind of commitment. So you think again about a nation needing to rebuild and renew and restore. You think about men and women needing to rebuild their lives Maybe you needing to rebuild and restore your life. Praying a prayer like, teach me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Make me wholeheartedly committed to you. That's a, that's a good prayer to pray. That's a prayer that God will respond to. That's a prayer God promises to answer. And God will provide 
help to those who look to him for help. And then the, the last section, God provides by helping those who look to him for help. The psalm ends in verses 14 to 17 where David now it tells us really why he's been praying this prayer. We come now to the nub of it, if you will. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. The same could be said about the nation of Israel having been taken into captivity. They are now surrounded by their enemies. And they're not sure whether or not God will protect them anymore. And so David prays this prayer in verse 14, or this statement in verse 14. And then in 15, he reminds himself, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. I don't have the strength to resist these men. I don't have the strength not to doubt. I don't have the strength to be strong enough to stand before my enemies with courage and fearlessness. Even though you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, I am afraid. I am weak. So give me your strength. And then he ends by with a prayer, show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Shortly after uh, the death of um, the great uh, scholar and theologian J.I. Packer uh, several years ago, uh, Matt uh, Smethurst posted uh, a list of 40 memorable quotes by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer wrote Probably his, his best-known book is Knowing God, which I heartily recommend. But he's written others as well, but Knowing God is, is up there as sort of the, the one that put him on the map. This one quote among the 40 that uh, Smethurst listed stands out and I think is directly applicable here to uh, Psalm 86. Packer wrote, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. It's that assurance, the assurance of God's favor, that motivates David to ask God for help. It also should be the thing that motivates us to ask for God's help as well. David's in trouble. He is surrounded by dangerous men with deadly intention. He needs, he not only wants, he needs God to be gracious to him. He needs God to deliver him from trouble, to be good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. That David knew God, that is a good thing. That God knew David, that's a far better thing. That you know God, that's a good thing. That God knows you, that's far better. That you know Jesus, that's good. That Jesus knows you is far better. Because if he knows you, then he has set his seal of love upon you. He has given you his Holy Spirit. And as Peter reminds us in his letter, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not as if God rescues us, saves us from our sin, hands us the Bible and says, good, you're on your own. He doesn't. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us pastors and teachers. He gives us the church 
to help us walk through this thing called the Christian life amidst a dark and darkling world that we might, through being light and salt in Christ's name, bring light and salt and preservation and goodness. When we are confronted and challenged by those who challenge us, our reliance and our strength and our dependence is not upon us, not upon our own wits. It ought not be. Can never be if we want to do what God has called us to do, which is to be salt and light. Our ultimate dependence, our ultimate strength, our ultimate resource is God and God alone. David trusts God to help him because God helps those who hope in him. He supplemented his faith by putting his hope in the only one who could deliver him from his circumstances. And I love the fact that it ends with a prayer. Show me a sign of your favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Now, David is talking about external enemies. And that prayer, show me a sign of your favor, is, is motivated by his strong desire and confidence, rather, that God will do what he asks. He's confident that God will do what he asks because God had helped and he had comforted David. David speaks in the past tense there. Because when David was on the run from Saul, God helped and comforted him. When David was on the run from Absalom, God helped him and comforted him. When David is confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba and the conspiracy to kill her husband, God helped him and comforted him. So David speaks from experience. He draws on what God has done in the past so that he can trust God in the present and then depend upon God for the future, which is the essence of what faith is. Faith is remembering what God has done in the past so that we can trust him in the present and then depend upon him for the future. David's enemies were external. Our enemy may be external, but our greatest enemy is our own sin. And the enemy of our souls who seeks to capitalize on our own sinfulness. And so when we ask God to show us a sign of his favor, who can rescue me from this body of death? Who can deliver me from this constant struggle, this turmoil within that the good I want to do is not the good I desire, I need to do, but the very evil I hate? Who can deliver me from that dilemma? Who can bring me out of being surrounded by my own bad choices? Well, the cross is that sign. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember the cross of Christ. The bread and the cup, they point to the cross as a sign of God's grace, which redeems us, which saves us, which renews us, which rebuilds us, which restores us, which revives us. That's why we have communion on a monthly basis. It's to just remember and to, re and to just be reminded of the great price and the great grace with which God has saved us. We can be sure of that because while we were still sinners, God sent his son to die for us. And so David received comfort, and so may we, through remembering what God has done. Remembering, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. David prayed this way because he was confident he had a name in heaven. 
and so do we. I read uh, this uh, selection to the staff on Tuesday. It's from uh, a book uh, written by the Puritan Matthew Mead. It's a rather long quote, so bear with me, and we'll, we'll end with this. But Matthew Mead wrote a, a book called A Name in Heaven, and this is what he writes. He says, Faith enters within the veil and moves the soul out of the valleys of sense to the glories of heaven. The treasures of most men are perishing, earthly, cankered, and moth-eaten treasures. Where is yours, O Christian? Is it in this world, or is it in the next? Is it in present vanities or future glory? Is it in present contentments or in an everlasting inheritance? Is it in profits, pleasures, and honors, or in grace, in glory? Do you build, plant, and sow for heaven? Many profess the hope of heaven, but in their conversations they savor only earthly things. Never talk of a name in heaven, writes Mead, as long as your heart is buried in the earth. If your heart is earthly, your name is in the earth. Do you live by sense or do you live by faith? Do you live upon the earthly or upon the promises? Is it your highest cause of rejoicing that your name is written in heaven? Do you set your joy and hope and heart upon this mercy? Earthly joy ebb and flow, blossom and wither, but heavenly joys are abiding. No man can take your joy from you. Who would not retire from the noise of a distracting world to rest his soul in the joys of the world to come? Whatever you enjoy in the world, riches, honors, pleasures, children, health, and beauty, let your joy be in God. This strikes at my heart as I contemplate what future lies before Jill and me. This is a stern reminder to me that we should never and I should never talk of a name in heaven as long as my heart is buried in the earth. So I ask you, where is your heart buried? The Lord will provide whatever we need because he is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. He provides by answering our prayers when we're in trouble. He provides because he is great and he does wondrous things. He provides so that we will trust him with all of our heart. He provides by helping those who look to him for help. And most, most amazingly at all, the Lord provides by giving us a name in heaven that none can erase. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Our prayer, Lord God, our hope is based and driven and built upon this one promise. You are a God who is good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon him. May we always, Lord God, call upon you. May we trust you. May we find you to be a God who is gracious who reminds us that our name is written in heaven. Therefore, our heart can rest easy in your presence as well. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.